0: Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the tragic story of United Airlines Flight 629. But first, your true crime headlines. Fotis Doulos, the Connecticut man facing murder charges in the disappearance of his wife, has been declared dead, according to his attorneys. Doulos' wife, Jennifer Farber Doulos, was reported missing in May of last year, and a subsequent investigation concluded that she was likely murdered, though her body has never been found. At the time of her disappearance, she was involved in a bitter custody dispute with her estranged husband, and in court filings she indicated that she was afraid of him. Last June, Fotis Doulos and his then-girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, were arrested and charged with tampering with or fabricating evidence for allegedly attempting to clean up the crime scene and dispose of evidence. Both pleaded not guilty. In January of this year, Dulos was arrested on murder and kidnapping charges in the case, for which he also pleaded not guilty, and posted a $6 million bond. He failed to appear in court for an emergency bond hearing last week, and when police went to his home to perform a welfare check, they found Dulos unresponsive in his garage after an apparent suicide attempt. He was rushed to the hospital, but died two days later. Doulos' attorneys have vowed to continue to fight to prove his innocence, filing a motion in court to substitute his estate as the defendant in the trial, so that the court proceedings could continue. Traconis and another man, Kent Mawini are both facing charges of conspiracy to commit murder in connection with Jennifer Farber-Doulos' disappearance. Both are accused of assisting in the cover-up of the murder, including creating false alibis and disposing of evidence. Neither have entered a plea yet. A Virginia teenager is facing murder charges for the shooting death of a Lyft driver. 18-year-old Bernard E. Smith was arrested and charged with second-degree murder and use of a firearm in the commission of a felony for the killing of Franklin Ferens, a 79-year-old rideshare driver who was found dead in his vehicle from a gunshot wound. Ferens was 25 miles from his home when he was killed, and it is believed that he came in contact with his killer after they summoned a ride through the popular rideshare app. Smith lives on the same block where Farrens was shot and killed, but police have not confirmed that it was Smith who called for the ride. Smith is being held without bond and is due to appear in court again in March. A 50-year-old convicted sex offender was arrested in Ohio and charged with abuse of a corpse in connection with the death of Peyton Houston, who was found buried in a shallow grave in Alabama earlier this year. Houston had been out with co-workers at a bar in Birmingham last December 20th and was seen leaving the bar willingly with two unidentified men. She sent a co-worker an alarming text message hours later, stating that she did not know the men who she was with and that she might be in trouble. Two weeks later, her body was found wrapped in sheets and buried in a shallow grave behind a vacant home. Toxicology tests determined that the young woman's death was caused by morphine and methamphetamine toxicity and the manner of her death was ruled to be accidental. Police arrested 50-year-old Frederick Hampton for abuse of a corpse for allegedly burying her body after she died. The house where she was found is owned by a relative of the accused and police believe that Hampton was one of the men seen leaving the bar with Houston on the night that she went missing. Hampton is not charged with killing the woman, but rather for his actions after her death. According to Alabama law, a person commits the crime of abuse of a corpse if he or she knowingly treats a human corpse in a way that would, quote, outrage ordinary family sensibilities. Hampton is being held in Ohio as he awaits extradition to Alabama. He is also facing unrelated charges for sex offender registry violations. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of United Airlines Flight 629. But first, a quick break. Valentine's Day is approaching, but if you're looking for a little excitement on your own terms, Dipsy can help you get in the mood. No date required. Dipsy is an audio app full of short sexy stories and guided sessions that are designed to turn you on and help you get in touch with yourself, whoever and whatever you're into. Dipsy's stories are relatable and immersive, so you feel like you're right there. Find stories about a spontaneous hookup with a hot stranger or getting closer with that sexy yoga instructor you can't stop thinking about. And if you are in a couple, Dipsy's stories make great foreplay, and their guided sessions can help you unlock new confidence and heighten intimacy with your partner. Break the ice and explore your fantasies with stories about trying that new toy together or getting tied up. And Dipsy adds new content every week, so the well will never run dry. This year, make Dipsy your Valentine. For Murder Minute listeners, Dipsy is offering a 30 day free trial when you go to dipsystories.comslash mm. That's 30 days free when you visit dipsiestories.comslash mm. What are you waiting for? Turn on Dipsy. They promise they'll return the favor. Get the hottest app of 2020 at DipsyStories.com slash mm. Did you know that many conventional deodorants contain aluminum, which works by forming a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? And do you even know what a paraben is? It's time to go native. Native deodorant is made with safe ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil and shea butter. And making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on performance. Native keeps me smelling and feeling fresh all day long, with over 10 amazing scents for men and women, like their best-selling coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, and my favorite lavender and rose plus limited edition seasonal scents like blackberry and plum and a dozen roses for valentine's day native also offers an unscented option and a baking soda free formula for those with extra sensitivities but native isn't just deodorant now you can keep your teeth naturally sparkling with the native toothpaste Native's toothpaste use a special blend of naturally-derived cleansers, flavors, and whiteners, and comes in two minty flavors, whitening wild mint and peppermint oil and detoxifying charcoal with mint, both with the option of fluoride or fluoride-free, that will help keep your mouth squeaky clean. And as always, Native products are vegan and never tested on animals. So it's not just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Make the natural choice. Try Native Today risk-free, with free shipping on every order and 30-day free returns and exchanges inside the U.S. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code MM during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com, promo code MM at checkout. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of United Airlines Flight 629. On November 1st, 1955, 44 people boarded United Airlines Flight 629 from Denver to Portland, Oregon. The Douglas DC-6B aircraft, known as the Mainliner Denver, had made several other trips that day. It had departed that morning from LaGuardia Airport in New York City, stopped briefly in Chicago, and finally continued to Denver's Stapleton International Airport. Flight 629 arrived to Denver at 6.11 p.m., 11 minutes late. The aircraft was refueled, a new flight crew got on board, and Captain Lee Hall, a World War II veteran, assumed command of the flight. The plane took off once again at 6.52 p.m., en route to Portland, Oregon, its final destination, Seattle, Washington. At 6.56 p.m., the pilot sent a transmission that the aircraft was passing the Denver Omni. It would be flight 629's last transmission. At 7.03 p.m., just 11 minutes after takeoff, Stapleton air traffic controllers watched as two bright lights suddenly appeared in the sky northwest of the airport. The lights fell for 30 seconds to the ground. Then, a bright, intense flash. Air traffic control quickly contacted all aircraft flying in the area. One didn't respond. United Airlines Flight 629 had crashed. The phone began ringing off the hook farmers and residents from all over the county reported loud explosions and fiery debris raining from the sky. Flight 629 was scattered across six square miles. All 44 people on board the aircraft perished. Five crew members and 39 passengers. The eldest victim, Layla McLean, was 81 years old, the youngest, James Fitzpatrick was just 13 months old. The plane crashed onto a farm east of Longmont where 18-year-old Conrad Kopp was having dinner with his family. It sounded like a big bomb went off and I ran out and I saw a big fire right over the Caddo Corral. I hollered back to my wife that she better call the fire department and an ambulance because a plane was going to crash, Kopp told the New York Times. Then I turned around, and it blew up in the air. Hop, his father, and his two brothers jumped into their trucks and sped through their fields toward the wreckage. I turned around, and there was a seat setting with a body in it, Cop recalled to reporter Rick Salinger. My stomach dropped. Then Cop recognized a familiar smell. I said it was blown up by dynamite. It wouldn't take long for investigators on the scene to discover the source of the familiar smell. According to the fire patterns, the large load of fuel ignited on impact, creating fires so intense that they couldn't be extinguished for three days. It was apparent that the aircraft had first blown in half in the air. The wings, engines, and center sections were found in two separate craters, 150 feet apart, confirming the eyewitnesses' accounts of two lights falling from the sky. The Civil Aeronautics Board found that the aircraft had blown up with a massive force concentrated near the tail, and that the fuselage had been shattered by an explosion strong enough to break apart the aircraft. An explosion far too powerful to be the result of an aircraft system or component malfunction. And the strong smell of explosives coming from the number 4 baggage compartment led investigators to theorize that Flight 629 had been brought down by a bomb in one of the passengers' bags. Further testing of chemical residue in the cargo pit confirmed their suspicions. Dynamite. On November 7, 1955, the Chief of Investigations of the Civil Aeronautics Board officially stated that there were indications of sabotage. On November 8, the case was turned over to the FBI. The search for potential suspects began with running background checks on the deceased passengers themselves and any passengers who had failed to board the plane or cancelled their ticket as well as the baggage handlers and anyone else who may have been in contact with the luggage. During their investigation, agents discovered that a few passengers had purchased life insurance at the airport just prior to boarding. In 1955, flying was considered more perilous than it is today. Passengers could purchase life insurance easily from machines in the terminal. One of those passengers was 53-year-old Daisy King, a successful Denver businesswoman who was traveling to Alaska to visit her daughter. The focus of the investigation narrowed to Mrs. King when agents identified her handbag among the debris. Inside, they found newspaper clippings about her son from a second marriage. But these weren't the kind of newspaper clippings a proud mother would normally carry in her handbag. Mrs. King was carrying a 1951 article about her son John Gilbert Graham being arrested on a forgery charge. John Gilbert Graham, known to everyone as Jack, was born on January 23, 1932, in Denver, Colorado. In 1937, when Jack was just five years old, his father died suddenly of pneumonia. It was the height of the Great Depression, and his mother Daisy struggled to care for Jack and his half-sister Helen, who was from her first marriage. Jack was sent to an orphanage. In 1941, Daisy married her third husband, John Earl King, and was finally again financially secure. But she never returned to the orphanage for Jack. At age 16, Jack Graham forged IDs and ran off to join the Coast Guard. And in 1951, at age 19, he got a job as a payroll clerk. There, Graham stole a stack of blank checks, filled out 42 of them for $100 each, forged the signature of the company owner, and cashed the checks at various businesses across Denver. Jack Graham stole $4,200, equivalent to almost $40,000 today. Half of that he used to buy a late model convertible, and quickly fled the state. Graham was caught in September of that same year when he was arrested in Texas on the charge of hauling whiskey in violation of Texas laws. He ran his convertible through a roadblock manned by local law enforcement and didn't surrender until shots were fired into his car. Graham spent 60 days in county jail and was released back to the Denver County District Attorney to face forgery charges. He was sentenced to five years probation. In 1954, Jack and his mother Daisy reconciled, and she gave him a job at her restaurant, the Crown A Drive-In. FBI agents soon discovered that the Crown A had recently been all but destroyed in an explosion. Coincidentally, Jack Graham had just insured the restaurant and collected soon after. The FBI searched Jack Graham's home. Wire and other bomb-making parts identical to those found in the plane wreckage filled the garage. In the house, hidden in a small cedar chest, they found an additional $37,500 in life insurance policies, equivalent to around $357,000 today. Unfortunately for Jack Graham, his mother had not signed the policies, nor did she sign those purchased at the airport. They were worthless. He did, however, stand to inherit a substantial sum of money through the execution of her will. When FBI agents first questioned Graham about the contents of his mother's luggage and asked him to describe the suitcase, Graham claimed that she had packed her own bags and that she would never allow anyone to assist her in packing. He furnished a description of her luggage, but said that he had no idea of its contents except that she had a considerable quantity of shotgun shells and a rifle, which she would use for hunting caribou when she reached Alaska. Graham's wife, Gloria, however, revealed something that her husband had failed to mention. She told investigators that she had seen Graham wrap a Christmas gift for his mother, which he then placed in her bag on the morning of her departure. On November twelfth, the FBI telephoned Jack and Gloria Graham. They informed the couple that they were in possession of fragments of Mrs. King's suitcase and requested that they come at their convenience to the FBI office to identify them. The next day, on November 13, 1955, Jack and his wife Gloria drove to the Denver FBI office and identified some pieces of brown luggage as the bag carried by Mrs. King. Once confirmed, Jack Graham was advised that the FBI would like to interview him further. Agents thanked Mrs. Graham for her assistance and told her that she was free to return home to her two small children if she wished. She did. When Graham was confronted with the FBI's evidence against him, he confessed. Jack Graham had built a time bomb composed of 25 sticks of dynamite, two electric primer caps, a timer, and a 6-volt battery. I wrapped about three or four feet of binding cord around the sack of dynamite to hold the dynamite sticks in place around the caps. The purpose of the two caps was in case one of the caps failed to function and ignite the dynamite. I placed the suitcase in the trunk of my car with another smaller suitcase, which my mother had packed to take with her on the trip. On November 14th, Jack Gilbert Graham was charged with sabotage. In 1955, there was not yet a federal statute on the books that made it a crime to blow up an aircraft. Flight 629 was only the second plane to be brought down by a bomb in the United States. The first case of sabotage of a commercial aircraft occurred on October 10, 1933 when a United Airlines flight was brought down in Indiana by a nitroglycerin bomb. Three crew members and four passengers were killed, and no suspect was ever identified, meaning there was no previous trial to set the legal precedent. So on November 17, 1955, the state of Colorado charged Jack Gilbert Graham with the murder of his mother, Mrs. Daisy E. King. Graham pleaded innocent by reason of insanity. The same day, investigators tracked down the supply company who had sold Graham a 60-minute timing device. On November 19th, the dynamite and blasting caps were traced to a store in Kremlin. On November 21st, the store manager positively identified Graham in a lineup. Jack Graham's half-sister, Helen, shed some light on his background to investigators. For many years, she had been concerned that he wasn't mentally stable. Jack was sullen, violent, and had a warped sense of humor. Helen recalled to investigators that after the plane crash, Jack had joked to her and Gloria, Can't you just see those shotgun shells going off in the plane every which way and the pilots, passengers, and grandma jumping around? Jack thought this was funny. But Helen thought it was warped and violent. On at least two occasions in the past, Helen had been the object of her brother's pent-up violent temper. On one occasion, she recalled, Graham knocked her down and kneed her in the chest so hard that it injured her ribs. On another, he threatened to beat her with a hammer, and Helen escaped by locking herself in a room. Just that previous summer, Graham woke from a nap and couldn't find his wife, Gloria. When he found her playing cards in the living room with his mother and Helen, he flew into a rage and began beating Gloria. Jack Graham was ordered to Colorado Psychopathic Hospital for examination by two defense and two court-appointed psychiatrists. During one of these examinations, Graham told the doctor that he had given a false confession. He claimed that while he was being interviewed by FBI agents at the office in Denver, he saw a photograph on the wall of the apprehension of Nazi saboteurs on the coast of Florida during World War II. Graham said that in the picture, agents were digging up a cache of explosives and that that's what gave him the idea to confess that he had used dynamite to blow up the plane. All four psychiatrists found Graham legally sane. And he was transported back to Denver County Jail. On February 10th, 1956, around 5.30 p.m., a prison guard heard heavy breathing coming from Jack Graham's cell. He found him slumped on the floor, his socks twisted around his neck with a piece of rolled cardboard used to gain more leverage. The guard quickly loosened the crudely fashioned noose and summoned the doctor Graham was sedated and placed in a straitjacket. And on February 11th, he was taken to the psychiatric ward, strapped to a bed, and placed under 24-hour surveillance. This time, Graham told psychiatrists that his confession was true. He told them that after he had assembled the bomb, And while his mother was preoccupied finalizing the details of her trip he had slipped it into her suitcase then he his wife and his children took her to the airport he dropped his mother and family off at the terminal door and drove to park the car in the lot there he removed the suitcase from the trunk and set the timer Graham had set the bomb to detonate 40 minutes after takeoff so that it would crash over the Rocky Mountains and be virtually impossible to recover. But the flight delay foiled his plan. Graham told doctors that he, quote, realized that there were 50 or 60 people carried on a DCB, but the number of people to be killed made no difference to me. Could have been a thousand. When their time comes, there's nothing they can do about it. Jack Graham's trial set an all-time record for the state of Colorado in the number of jurors examined. 231 were called before a jury could be selected. Many were rejected on the grounds that they had either been influenced by the press and had fixed opinions on the case, or that they were against capital punishment. The final jury selected included a housewife, a former beauty queen, two typists, a movie executive, an engineer, a bookkeeper, a lithographer, a truck driver, a sales lady, a telephone man, and a salesman. The sensational trial was the first in Colorado to be televised, and hundreds of people waited for hours in the halls outside the courtroom, hoping to get a seat. The guard saved a seat for only one woman, who arrived promptly at 9 a.m. every day of the trial. It was the beautiful young wife of the pilot of United Airlines Flight 629. Graham was eerily calm throughout the trial. He wore a suit, chewed bubblegum, and slouched in his chair, seemingly unconcerned that he was on trial for murder. On the ninth day of the proceedings, his defense moved to eliminate FBI testimony and evidence on the grounds that Jack Graham was not advised of his rights before he signed his confession. His defense contended that Graham's confession had been obtained under duress and that the search of his home was done without his consent. The FBI produced eight waivers of search, which Graham had signed, and the judge dismissed the motion. The prosecution presented its case for 15 days, called 80 witnesses, and introduced 174 exhibits into evidence. The defense called eight witnesses and rested its case. Graham refused to testify. On May 15, 1956, after 69 minutes deliberation, the jury found Jack Gilbert Graham guilty of murder in the first degree and recommended the death penalty. On May 15, 1956, after 69 minutes deliberation, the jury found Jack Gilbert Graham guilty of murder in the first degree and recommended the death penalty. On July 14, 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower signed a bill authorizing the death penalty for any person convicted of committing an act of aircraft sabotage that results in death. The new law also provided for prison sentences of up to 20 years for acts of aircraft sabotage not resulting in death. As far as feeling remorse for those people, I don't, I can't help it, Graham told a reporter from Time magazine. Everybody pays their way and takes their chances. That's just the way it goes. On Friday, January 11th, 1957, at 8.08 p.m., Jack Gilbert Graham was executed in the gas chamber. Of the Colorado State Penitentiary. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at MurderMinute.